Hello and welcome to the first episode of Trust Issues, a new podcast from Kepler Trust Intelligence, where we speak to interesting people about exciting things happening in the markets today. Guests will be invited on to discuss a particular area of the market they think investors should know about. So that could be a region, an asset class or a new technology. Our first guest is Steve Hsu. Steve is something of a polymath. He has a PhD in theoretical physics from Berkeley and is currently a professor at Michigan State. He's written papers on a range of topics, including theoretical physics, cosmology, and computer science. And he's also set up several technology businesses, with the most recent one being genetic testing business genomic prediction. To top that off, he also writes a popular blog, which is read by at least one former advisor to the British Prime Minister. Previous British Prime Minister, I should add. Uh, Today we'll be talking about China, where Steve holds what is probably fair to describe as a, a slightly contrarian view. Before we get into that, a reminder that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It is strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Steve, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, I wonder if I could open things up with quite a broad question, which is based on you know, reading your blog, listening to your podcast and so on, one does get the impression you're quite bullish or optimistic about um, China's economy, China's growth. Um, can you talk in, maybe in quite broad terms about what things you are optimistic about? Why do you think China is going to continue to grow and, and be a major force in the, in the, in the global economy in the future? Yeah, let me first give you my bona fides. Um, you know, why, the listeners probably saying, "Well, why, why do I care about this guy's opinion?" So, I have traveled many times to China. I'm an academic scientist and also a tech startup founder, and so I've worked with many scientists and engineers in China. I've also dealt with uh, investors and companies, uh, large and small in China. So I feel I have a pretty good view of it. And, and I've been doing this, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s. So I've been doing this for a long time since before even I think the first time I went to China, the, the economy actually hadn't opened up. And I deliberately went to see Shenzhen, which was a special economic zone. And so I've seen the whole trajectory and have really been tracking it, uh, both at, you know, the level that their universities are at technologically, their companies, but then also the you know the the economic and financial aspects of the whole thing. So, so I feel like I have some expertise, even though you know my day job is as a professor of physics, and my you know moonlighting job is as a tech founder. Uh, I guess I advise some venture and hedge funds and things like this. But but it might not seem that I would be useful to talk to, but uh, I actually maybe am useful to talk to. So just thought I'd get that out of the way. Now. In terms of what is meant by being bullish on China, um, you know, I'm not saying that you should take every penny in your portfolio and buy exposure to the Chinese economy. That that I'm not. I wouldn't say that at all. I would say that the doomers who think that the Chinese economy is near imminent collapse, or that the demographic problems they have are going to stop it from becoming the world's the largest economy in the world. Um, I think all of those claims are low probability for me. 
Um, I think the things you can reliably say is they have tremendous momentum in terms of the rate of advancement in technology. So they're pretty much caught up in almost everything now. The few things that they're not really caught up, and, and by caught up, I mean caught up with the rest of the world. So, so you know, usually the U.S. is among the leaders in almost any tech category, but sometimes it's not the U.S., like ASML is a Dutch company. Um, but the, the funny thing about China is it's so big that in almost every technology vertical or pure science research vertical, they're now at parity with best in class in the world. And, and the, the things that you could specifically point to and say, oh, yeah, but they're, they've not gotten below 14 nanometers for semiconductor production. They're way behind TSMC and Samsung. Yeah, but they're pouring huge resources into that. And there are specific reasons which I could talk about, which suggests they're going to catch up pretty fast. Whereas when you talk about alternative energy, nuclear energy, space program, military technology, software development, you name it, uh, they're pretty close to caught up. And in addition to being caught up, which is a, a static statement about an instant in time, you have to look at the first derivative. Like how fast is it changing? Like how many more world-class researchers are there gonna be who are 35 years old in China 10 years from now than there are today. And that number is going to be much larger. See, the thing people don't realize is that if you go back just 10 years, there were almost no world-class graduate programs in science and engineering in China. So if you were a very top student in China and you wanted to get a world-class education, you would have to come to America, to America or to England or somewhere, Germany. That's changed, and in the last 10 years now, there are many Chinese universities in many specific subjects in science and engineering that have world-class graduate programs. But that means they're only just starting to produce internally PhDs fully trained in China uh, that didn't have to spend a huge amount of time like figuring out how to speak English and, and do all kinds of things like figure out how to use the Kmart or the Walmart in, you know, Columbus, Ohio or something like this. They didn't have to do all that. They just stayed in China the whole time, but then they made it to the scientific frontier and they're young. So that number, if you actually sit down and try to calculate what is the rate of growth of their human capital base, world-class human capital base, it's, it, it's enormous. It's just people don't realize. Um, so I think for that and many other reasons, I mean, their capital markets are not perfect. Uh, you know, they have plenty of distortions in their capital markets from government intervention, but nevertheless, they function. They function to allocate, allocate capital from greedy investors to promising new technologies and business models. So uh, the idea that it's not gonna, China's not gonna continue growing in its influence on the rest of the world is, I think very low probability for me. I, I, it, 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 there are scenarios where it could happen, but I, I wouldn't put a lot of weight on them. Great, and I think just on the back of that, I have a couple of questions. So one is, you mentioned quite a lot of areas where you think Chinese expertise is say on par with the US or, or other global leaders, but tech in general, I think is quite a broad term. So if you look at say, um, I don't know, Uber, Tinder and Google, right, could all be considered technology companies in, in some way. Are there any specific f 
fields in China that you think China has maybe a leading edge on, right? Where they'll really, you in the in the future will really start to see them you know, develop and and maybe even become a world leader in, or maybe that's already the case. Yeah. Um, and then the the other question I have is, I think when I was definitely when I was growing up, let's say when I was I was a teen or younger, ten ten plus years ago, I think the perception was that a lot of Chinese tech, whether that's hardware or software, was often just like a knockoff or an, an imitation of, of a Western equivalent. What would you say to that critique? Because I think that a lot of people still think that today about a lot of stuff that comes out of China, that it's just in some way a knockoff of a Western equivalent. And then that's all really... If you took, say, software as an example, a lot of programs will just be some kind of imitation of a US or, or other Western product. And that that has basically been kind of limiting and that uh, is a limiting factor and that perhaps Chinese people in tech are not capable of, of, of going beyond that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, the, the, you, you brought up several points there. So when, when you ask for some places where they might be actually world leaders and two, you really in a way address this first derivative, uh, you know, rate of change thing that I was describing, because it is absolutely true that if you go back 10 years, they were still playing catch up. So uh, particular devices that you would buy from a Chinese company, they were often getting the tech from some foreign uh, collaborators, um, partners, um, and maybe just stealing it. And the device that they made, you know, maybe the quality level wasn't particularly good. But the point is that because their rate of change is so fast, 10 years for them is really a long time. Like if you say like, oh, what did this, how did the status of France versus Germany in terms of their tech, uh, you know, technological competition, how did that change in the last 10 years? It, it didn't really change actually. <laughs> Whereas, I mean, relative to each other, that both countries advanced, but uh, there wasn't something dramatic happening. What I'm trying to say is China's uh, quite a different story from that. So you went from, you have very huge human capital base, but the institutions, and the embedded knowledge to train top technologists is a relatively recent thing there. Now, let me let me just give you some examples. So uh, if you look at solar panels, um, you might think, oh, that, is that a low tech thing or a high tech thing? Um, the efficiencies that people are able to achieve through a semiconductor process uh, and then do that at scale so that they can sell millions and millions of solar panels per year uh, that's pretty much all there now. Um, if you look at battery technology, where is Tesla getting its batteries? Where is GM getting its batteries? Those are Chinese companies like CATL and BYD. So I guess what I would say is that there, I could give you a list of verticals where if you just want to do like an hour of research not even an hour, like 20 minutes of research on any one of these verticals. And then you just say like, like what's best in class product in this vertical? Uh, and let me compare it to the Western one. You could rapidly convince yourself that they're at parity or better in a lot of these verticals. So smartphones, um, because the US, you know, really attacked Huawei, I can no longer really buy a Huawei phone in the United States, but I was tracking this very carefully. I actually bought a Huawei phone right before this ban happened to just see if it was any good. 
And it's actually now the case that these inexpensive Xiaomi phones, which we can't really get in the US, but I think you can get in Europe still, and definitely they sell tons of them in India and Asia. On a cost basis, they're actually better than the Android phones that you can buy in the United States. And the flagship Xiaomi phone is every bit as good as, a, as, an, as an iPhone. So any one of these things, I, I would just say, you can, you can actually research this if you're lazy on YouTube. You know, you could sit on your couch and say, okay, um, show me a review of the electric vehicles that you can now buy. They're being imported into the United States. Uh, what, how good is it? And you can find people reviewing these vehicles and, you know, they might not quite be as good as Tesla, but they're not far behind. Uh, and you know, their rate of improvement is, is very strong. So, um, you know, I could go further segment by segment. So if you, if you ask like about TikTok, TikTok went from just a few years ago being some curiosity to now, like it totally dominates the lives of younger people in America. And all of that is based on AI and all of that is domestic AI technology. Uh, TikTok is actually owned by a, a, a parent Chinese company that their real specialty is actually AI. And if you start playing around TikTok, you'll see it's super addictive. Like it figures out very quickly what you're interested in. Are you interested in big bosomed girls who like to dance in front of the camera? Or are you interested in skinnier athletic girls who dance? You know, it figures these things out very fast and addicts you. And uh, so it's an example of, you could say that kind of AI is really, really leading edge technology as far as software and machine learning goes. And as far as I can tell, it's every bit as good as, you know, the, the recommendation engine in YouTube. Um, you know, they're slightly different products because TikTok is aimed more towards short videos, but still it's really quite good. You can see it's quite good. If you look at face recognition technology, if you look at uh, commercial space, like if you, you know, uh, if it weren't for SpaceX, if you just, if you take away SpaceX and you look at space orbital launch, China versus the United States, China's actually uh, putting up more stuff. And there are a bunch of nascent commercial space companies in China that, you know, look like they're capable of, in the long run competing with SpaceX. So you can't really, when you have a situation where things are changing so fast, you cannot just uh, continue to trust something that you learned 10 years ago. What you actually need to do is, and it's actually quite interesting to do this, like just go on YouTube and say like, okay, show me the latest uh, on the Chinese space station. And you realize, oh my God, these guys put up their own space station and it's quite impressive. It's actually much more modern than the International Space Station. And then you say like, well, I guess the Americans put a Mars rover on Mars. Oh, look over there, there's actually a Chinese Mars rover. <laughs> they landed. Um, dark side of the moon, there is a Chinese rover exploring the dark side of the moon. Um, and if you look at the, the teams, so if you, if you actually go on YouTube and you watch uh, and you see like, okay, what you watch the team in the control room celebrating after the China Mars rover landed, these people are incredibly young. Like the, the lead engineer on the project might be 35. So it, I think these things are just not very, A, they're not very well appreciated because it's just easier to just stick to what you knew, quote, knew was true 10 years ago. Um, also, people just don't have the bandwidth to track 10 different 
areas of technology. They just generally can't. And so they don't, they might realize like the guy who studies electric vehicles and batteries might know very well. Yeah, actually, you know, there's a reason why Tesla built that huge factory in Shanghai. And there's a, there's a, there's a the, you know, the, there's really heavy competition going on in the space. Um, but then they might not know what's happening with AI or they might not know what's happening with um, rare earths. Uh, you know, so the big picture though, is that on many, many, many fronts, they're advancing very rapidly. And, you know, could that all stop because of a war or Xi Jinping or some bubble bursting in China, property bubble? Possibly, possibly. But I think once they get the hang of large scale capitalism, manufacturing, uh, you know, software development, all these things, um, it's hard to put that back in the bottle, put it that way. Let, let me add one more thing, which yeah. is that because Google was forced to cut off Huawei from the Android operating system, they went away and built their own thing called Harmony OS. And the first iterations of Harmony OS were really shitty. They were basically just like take Android and then like change some things and call it, change the name. But then over time, and we're time here, we're talking like three years or five years. Um, eventually, Harmony OS has become a very promising new operating system technology that's really oriented toward small devices, Internet of Things. And so it's its own thing, which people in the West would just be totally unaware of. There's a thing called Harmony OS. But if you go to Asia, you'll find like, oh, my God, my refrigerator is talking to my phone using the Harmony OS platform and and all these other things. And so even stuff like software, like not even AI, but just standard software development, it's pretty clear they can do all this stuff. There's no doubt. You know, the amount of internet uh, e-commerce, whether it's, you know, their version of Uber, like DD, their version of uh, Facebook or whatever, you know, WeChat, for example, all of these huge platforms, which are servicing, you know, 1.4 billion people, huge market, you know, probably always the single biggest internet market, uh, they all work really well. Like if you go to China and you use their stuff, it all works extremely well. So then you could say, oh, I'm sure they're just copying. I'm sure they're just copying. They steal it, all this stuff from the Google engineers and then they repurpose it in China. And that's how they're able to launch all these platforms and stuff. No, actually, that's not what's going on if you just if you just rub the surface. So um, anyway, that let me stop there and, and let you follow up. Yeah, thanks. It's all very interesting. So. Um... I mean, maybe to push back on, on some of the things you said, I think if, if people had been listening to this, say, two and a half years ago, a month into, into the pandemic beginning, and the perception was that China was handling it very well, they seemed on track to sort of recover from it better than the West, which seemed to be in kind of disarray, completely chaotic. Whereas now, I think that the opposite. And um, I was speaking to the manager of, of one of the trusts we work with from Investor Asia Trust, who's who's just invested uh, more in China. But he framed that as, a, as something of a contrarian move to make, given everything that's happened in the past, let's say, 12 months. And I think part, part of the reason for that is after the war in Ukraine started, people suddenly became aware that, okay, perhaps China is this more authoritarian system. And many of the things that apply to Russia also to apply to, apply to China as well. And in that sense, so what, what, one of the things you, you brought up here is um, the number of, say, STEM graduates and, and how, as a result of that, more innovation will follow. But if you draw a comparison, right, I think there's, there's 
Soviet Union or, or Russia today still has produces quite a lot of STEM graduates. But if you then look at what happens to them, they tend to thrive outside Russia more than they do inside Russia. So if you look at, say, Google or WhatsApp, or PayPal, they all had founders who were, who were born in the Soviet Union, but were only really able to realize their potential in, in the US. And then more recently, you have, say, a company like Yandex, which is probably Russia's biggest tech company, uh, and the founder left, you know, long, about 10 years ago. Uh, and it's the same with, with their other big tech company, Telegram, where the founder was forced to leave, I think, in 2014, maybe it was earlier. And so I suppose my point is that the, the political system that you operate in does seem to have some influence on how how creative you can be as, let's say, an, a, a software engineer or entrepreneur or whatever it might be. And so it, even though I appreciate Russia is not the same as China, I think a lot of people might see parallels where they go, well, China is an authoritarian system. Therefore, people doesn't it doesn't really matter how many graduates they have because people operating in that system even if they're very smart, aren't going to be allowed to realize their potential. So, so what would you say to, to that? Yeah, so first, I, I, don't, I think the analogy between Russia and China is, is really not the one you should make. One, because China is a, a much, much bigger economy. Um, and if you ask average Chinese people, like you ask a, a talented kid who just graduated from Tsinghua University or something, and you say, like, what are you doing now? Uh, in the past, remember what I was saying is that that kid almost certainly was trying to come like to the U.S. for graduate school or maybe just to get a job with a West company and leave China. But it's relatively easy if you, if you, if you actually really care about the answer to this and it's, it's just not part of your like self-identity or virtue signaling. You, you could just try to find out like, okay, what, what, what happens to the top graduates? It's not a difficult uh, question to answer. What happens to the top graduates at these universities? Most of them still want to stay in China. They see more opportunity in China. Now, I don't think that's true of Russian engineers. You ask a Russian engineer and they'll be like, yeah, man, I'm on the first uh, plane to uh, Germany or UK or the US. But it's not the sentiment actually of young, talented Chinese technologists or entrepreneurs. So now having said that, of course, the government can put a damper on you know, tech activities or economic activities, especially in a, in a system like China, which is an authoritarian system. So you saw that just recently when Xi Jinping kind of accidentally, they kind of accidentally crushed, you know, Ali, well, maybe not accidentally, but, but you know, the, uh, the Ant uh, financial IPO, uh, what happened to Alibaba, things happened there, which are, were far more authoritarian uh, form of government intervention into market activity than we are used to at all in the US. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to downplay that. So if you're an investor like me, you know, who, who has some shares in Alibaba and is pissed off about what's happened to Alibaba in the last year or two, um, yeah, you gotta be very careful about that. And a friend of mine who, you know, is a former, he's retired now, but is a former very senior quant at, at Goldman, has run the numbers and says like, basically on average stock investors in China didn't really participate in this huge economic boom. There was a huge economic boom and the GDP and the quality of life improved like crazy for Chinese people. But external investors really didn't, if you look at the numbers carefully, didn't typically participate. And so he, he's actually very bullish on China as ter in terms of, you know, its development as an economy and, you know, technology base, whatever, what have you. But he's very uh, bearish on 
actually trying to own, uh, financially own, you know, some of that future. So it's, it's a very, you have to be very careful what you're talking about. Are you talking about what is going to happen in China for the, in the next few decades, or how can I make money off of that? I mean, those are two different questions. Um, now this, uh, so just, just, for, just for clarity on, on the point you just made, when you say, um, foreign investors or local investors, sorry, were not involved in the, in the development, what, what exactly are you referring to? Are you referring to the stock market or are you referring to just the wider economy? I think he, I haven't looked at his analysis, but I think the claim is if you're a Western investor and you want to, uh, participate in these returns, like, in other words, how can you invest your money in China over say a 10 year period and then take it out with big winnings? You, you ought to be able to because the economy is growing so fast, right? or it was in the, if you, this is a, more of a look back analysis. And his, his claim is that it's extremely hard, it, that, that really there hasn't been that much, uh, you know, market cap appreciation. Now, now, I'm not sure exactly how he runs this analysis, but all I'm saying is I'm not making a claim that you should invest your money or a big chunk of your portfolio in Chinese equities or, or whatever. I am saying that those guys are going to make progress. Like they're going to have electric charging stations all over the country and switch their vehicle fleet over to electric way before everybody else. And those cars are not going to be Tesla's. Those cars are going to be made by BYD and, and other local competitors. And then those same cars are going to be exported like crazy to the United States and other countries. And, and, yeah. and if you don't believe me, just go on, let, let me just finish. If you don't believe just, me, just go on YouTube and, yeah. and, and look at individual dudes who are, who are reviewing those vehicles. Like you can actually just see guys in LA who have one of these cars and they're driving it around and comparing it to their other car, which is a Tesla. And you can just figure out immediately, nobody can hide that BMW is a good car or this particular GM model is a shitty car. Nobody can hide any of that. You can just go on YouTube and watch people who own the car driving it around. So to say that you don't believe that the Chinese electric vehicle industry is going to be a strong competitor to Tesla just means you haven't done your research, basically. And then the idea that, well, is Xi Jinping going to shut down the electric car business in China? No, I don't think so. He's probably actually going to build internal incentives that actually support that industry. And then you could ask, well, is, a, is the modal engineer who graduates from Zhejiang University who goes to work at BYD to design electric car engines or something, is that guy hampered because uh, they're you know, censoring his WeChat posts or something? No, not really. You can actually meet an engineer like that, have dinner with them and just ask him like, oh, how impressive is the environment for you? And he'll just look at you and like, what are you talking about? Um, I go to the park with my family and I, I can ride the high speed train over to Xinjiang and take a vacation. They, they have a totally different view of what just Joe lazy Westerner who hasn't actually done any research thinks about what is really going on in China. So I, I guess the number one thing I would say to your audience is if you do have these kind of lazy 10 year old beliefs about China, you ought to really do a little bit of research and it might change your perspective. It may not pay off in terms of your ability to invest and capture those returns, but at least you'll have a better picture of what's happening in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, what one point to push back on there is that there does seem there's maybe some contradiction in what, in what you're saying in the sense that if let's, let's take the example you just gave, right. Where 
you're a Chinese company and you want to become a, a leading EV manufacturer or, or whatever it might be, to make that happen, you're probably going to need quite a lot of capital, right? But if you, if, if, if your investors are worried that, well, who knows what can happen given, given the way this country is governed, I'm not, I, I'm not going to be able to have that capital and so I'm not going to be able to, do, to, to, to create the sort of business I want. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you have to remember, this is why, again, the, there's no comparison between the situation in China and Russia or China even in developing Japan or developing South Korea. The Chinese economy is large enough now yeah. that you can't stop it. FDI, foreign direct investment, is a second order effect for them. It's not the leading effect anymore. It hasn't been for a long time. So, and I mean, if you look at the only 20% of GDP in China is export. So even if they lose the entire U.S. export market, like Trump just says, you're not, you can't sell anything in America. Yeah, it'll be a terrible short-term effect on their economy, but it will not cripple their economy in any way. It's like 20% global exports, all their exports is 20% of their GDP. They can easily take a hit. If it's a wartime situation or a really tense geopolitical situation, they can take that hit. They can, t they can lose half of that 20%. It's not gonna cripple them. So I think people just don't know the numbers. They, they don't really understand. They think, oh, actually we're back at this time when like Walmart is the only thing keeping the Chinese economy alive. They, they don't really realize like that most of industrial production in China is used for China development. You know, that's why they have high-speed trains and airports and things like this. So you have to look at the numbers. Otherwise you're just, you're hopelessly out of date. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to maybe to push back again on, on something else you've, you've been saying. I think one of the points you've made here and also and people in general make quite a lot is that there is this big educational gap in terms of technology grads. And so as a result of having more technology grads, China is going to succeed in, in various spheres of, of the tech sector, which has probably been the main driver of, of economic growth for the US over the past 20 plus years. But for, I mean, and maybe you'll take this as a silly question, but like, it seems to me that a lot of the time, innovation doesn't necessarily follow from having a lot of grads, right? So if you look at, say, the Industrial Revolution in the UK, that didn't happen because a lot of people decided to study engineering and then work in, you know, create an Industrial Revolution. There was an Industrial Revolution and then people uh, decided to study engineering, if that makes sense. So that that's always been an area that I find quite interesting is trying to figure out what is actually the connection between having, do, do a lot of grads in a given field uh, exist and then they, they innovate or is it actually the other way around yeah. where the reason you have a lot of tech graduates in China is because they already have a really good tech industry, right? So if you look at Jack Ma, Jack Ma, I think didn't use, was, was definitely not a tech graduate and he's, maybe he's the exception, right? But he's, he's arguably their biggest tech uh, success story. Yeah, so there's a lot of complicated ideas there. So one is, is it possible that there's some amazing new, you know, revolutionary kind of technology that, uh, you know, it's going to come out of the blue, like some guy who's not part of the establishment. And about here by establishment, I mean, not just like university researcher or government laboratory researcher or corporate lab researcher or, you know, nobody with nobody like that is anticipating this and it's just going to come out of the blue and uh, for some reason the Chinese aren't going to participate in that but uh, the Americans are or something. It's always possible, right? It's always possible. But 
what's more likely in my mind is that, you know, for example, I, I would say the single biggest driver of tech advancement in the last 20 years, maybe you could say 30 years, is just Moore's Law. Everything else can be traced to Moore's Law. Like our software is a little bit better than it was 20 years ago, but it's not much better. Uh, but we got a factor of a million in compute. It's hard to point to almost anything that in which we got a factor of a million in that isn't semiconductor related. So even, you know, efficiencies of solar panels, uh, sensors, if you actually look at why we got the factor of a million, it's because of manufacturing processes, which are very similar to the way that we make semiconductors, okay? But basically miniaturization and getting very efficient at making nanoscale features and things like this. But if you actually look, okay, if that was really the main driver for why the world today is different than it was 20 or 30 years ago, that's something that it didn't happen out of the blue. What actually happened is, and you could look, go look at like the Semiconductor Association of America roadmap. Their technical roadmap is extremely detailed and they're tracking like, okay, when we, when we leave silicon as a substrate, what are we gonna go to? What's economically viable? And well, there are these five different things people are working on and there are, there are labs in these countries and these companies working on. You can actually see how innovation actually works instead of like some journalists reporting of it. Um, and you'll see that there's a tremendous amount of anticipation and planning and really hard work testing things out, which require huge amounts of human capital. So this is just totally underappreciated by people. People think like, oh, software is the magic and uh, forget that we got a factor of a million by miniaturizing transistors. But if you actually look at how we miniaturize transistors, it ate up like a pretty good chunk of the chemistry and physics and engineering graduates of you know major world power like the United States, you know, locked in a cold war with Russia for a long, long, big chunk of this period, it ate up most of that human cap or big chunks of that human capital in order to keep Moore's law going. So the, the true story of innovation is not what most people think. It's not like Joe in the garage. You know, Joe in the garage might capture a big market because he's clever and he has some business model innovation or he seizes some opportunity earlier than other people and just grabs the market share and holds on to it. But the core technological capability of a society is, 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 is developed in a very different way. Um, and, and anyway, you, the, I think it takes a certain amount of study to understand like what actually happened. <laughs> like, but this factor of a million should catch people's eye. It's like, oh, how many, is my car a million times better than the car my dad drove? No, it's maybe 20% better. Um, but certain things around us are a million times better. And how did that happen? And then how many people did that take? And was it like one lone genius who did it? Or was it like armies of super smart guys with PhDs from MIT you know, and, and Stanford? You know, it's a, the story is quite different than what you might think. Yeah, no, I, I, I get where you're coming from. But so as in, I think in, in this instance, it's what you're saying maybe is that it might be the case that a novel technology is developed randomly, but that then leads to a huge number of developments in that technology, which are usually undertaken by just a lot of very intelligent people rather than one random yeah, person, you, or have I misunderstood? You could give a, like a, a good comparison between, say between India and China, because there are a lot of entrepreneurs in India. And uh, I was told actually just recently by uh, Sebastian Malaby, who wrote a big book on venture capital, that nowadays the Indian kids are all encouraged by their parents, not just to go to IIT, but go to IIT and then found a company. And um, even in some Indian rom-coms, like the, the most desirable bachelor for your son is someone who's a startup founder and stuff like this, right? So, so they really got the startup spirit, but they don't have the industrial infrastructure 
and to some extent, even they're lacking some of the human capital infrastructure to build these kinds of companies that China can build. Right. We're not surprised when the leading companies in any given sector are, say, American. But then you look and you say, OK, what are the what are the capabilities of Google versus Alibaba or Baidu? Well, there's not that big of a technical gap. Uh, how what are the differences in capabilities of Tesla and BYD? Well, actually, there isn't that much big of a gap. But if you if you try to build those companies in India, you might not be able to do it. Like you just wouldn't be able to because they don't have the industrial nor honestly at the highest highest level human capital base. Almost all their human capital base leaves India if it can and comes to the United States to work. So um, anyway, uh, uh, there's a there's a basic level of infrastructure which is both you know mechanical and human uh, that you need if you're going to compete with America on some of these things. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe to, to change tack a little bit, one of the things you said was that, it, that, that the situation China is in today is not necessarily comparable to, to say, Japan in the past. But I think that is that is a comparison uh, lots of people make, given that, say, in the late 80s, there were you know lots of articles claiming that Japan was going to overtake the US and all this stuff. Obviously, that didn't happen. And if you look at, say, something like population growth, it does seem as though China may may face the same problem, right? Which is basically it gets it gets old before it gets rich. But there's also there's also the difference there that the, the GDP per capita is I think about the same as Panama or something, right? So if if growth does stop, it also stops at a much lower, at least on a per capita basis, level than it did in, in Japan. Um I mean, what do, you, what do you think of that argument? Well, it's definitely a challenge for China that uh, they're having these demographic problems. And, um, you know, they are still a developing country. So the average level is, is still relatively low compared to the U.S. It's more like the level per capita income is more like Mexico than the United States. So they have a lot of catching up to do. And if they really do run into a demographic brick wall, uh, they're going to be in trouble. So I think that that is a danger for them. Now, I would say all developed countries, Japan, China, the U.S., if you look at the educated affluent subset of the U.S., uh, all of them have very low TFRs. So there's just going to be this general problem that in the developed world, the people that are highly educated and are likely to you know, provide the kind of environment for their kid to become a scientist or engineer or, or tech entrepreneur, uh, they're just not producing enough babies for that. Now, the U.S. can fight it to some extent because we suck in so much talent from outside. Uh, so that's our, you know, we're probably going to fare better than, say, Japan. The issue with China is still that people need to look at, again, the numbers. They went through a very large urbanization. So, so if you go back like, uh, let's see, you have to go back about 40 years Huge numbers of Chinese were still like doing like agriculture and we're not even living in cities. And so, you know, in the recent last few decades, I think some number like 600 million Chinese say, you know, moved from the countryside to the cities. But there's still three or 400 million that are still living in the countryside. And so they still have a reservoir of people that um, by moving them into a more urban environment and increasing their educational opportunities, they're still going to gain some momentum from those changes. Those changes are not completed yet for them, whereas they are completed more or less for Japan and the United States. So it's actually a very complicated situation that you need to, you need to analyze it uh, quantitatively to come to a, 
a real conclusion. But I, I definitely think dem demography is a problem for, for China. I think that's that's actually why they've now completely eliminated the one child policy, and they're actually now trying to get people to have more kids and stuff like this. And maybe they maybe they came to it too late, uh, and they're gonna they're gonna have a problem. But uh, it, it's really a more of a quantitative question. Yeah, and um, I mean another another area where there seems to be some comparison with Japan, or at least people are making comparisons with Japan, is um, on, say, the domestic consumption side, right? So if you look at a lot of Chinese leaders for the past couple of decades have been saying that they need to transition into this a, 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 an economy with a higher level of domestic consumption, which doesn't really seem to be happening. And at the same time, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, it, it seems as though that if they tried to take steps to do that, or to try and encourage that. So if that was you know, improving the wealth, building a more substantial welfare state, um, trying to increase wages, um, make, making housing more affordable, you then risk upending the system that's been in place for so long, which has kind of driven driven their growth, right? So, and then also you have, you have, let's say, the wealthy elite who may not be happy with those policies, and also exporters may not be happy with those policies. So, I mean, do you think that's a that's a fair analysis of the situation and also do you think that's domestic consumption is, is something they can encourage or, or maybe they've already done it i don't know you know I, I think that's a that's a problem they're trying to solve and and you know the thing to keep track of there is that is what fra you know what fraction of their economy is export driven versus uh domestically driven and it's definitely going the right direction but um i, I wouldn't say for sure that it's, they're going to solve this problem i mean they may be trapped in some kind of uh situation where the domestic economy, the, the, the Chinese people are still, you know, very risk averse. They don't believe in the social safety nets uh, that they're going to emerge. And so they're just saving huge amounts of money. That's that's the pattern for most Chinese families is they save huge amounts of money. And uh, because they, um, you know, don't think that there's a safety net waiting for them. So the government has to build that safety net and then convince the people that it's OK. And then the people can spend more money and stimulate the local economy. And I think all that's a difficult process. I don't think I could say with confidence one way or another exactly how it's going to go. But it's definitely a challenge that they're they're well aware of this challenge and they're working on this challenge. Yeah. And uh, I mean, so, something you've also mentioned quite a few times throughout this is basically that there's a reason to be optimistic on, on the Chinese economy, but perhaps not necessarily because of in um, being able to, to take advantage of that as an investor. So almost illustrate your point you're seeing at the moment you know adrs in the u.s being i think there's increasing signs that they may be face delisting whether or not you you think the official reason for that is is um with the auditing problems is, is the case but basically it seems like there's there is quite a big risk of tensions between the u.s and china upending things for individual investors um i mean do you think again do you think that's a fair Fair comment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would be worried, very worried about that myself, that these geopolitical tensions are going to spill over and hurt people who are uh, investing in China. I, you know, I, I am not the right person to get expert advice on this from, you know, I'm very curious how Ray Dalio, you know, tries to get exposure to the Chinese economy and stuff like this, but he may have tools that are just not available to a small investor like myself. So uh, I don't know what the most yeah. effective way to do this is. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, another point related to that is U.S. sanctions, which you, you touched on with Huawei. 
again, it's kind of difficult to not see those ramping up. I could be wrong, but um, I tend to be more pessimistic. I mean, how resilient do you think the chi Chinese economy, um, particularly that you know, with Huawei as a great example of that, will be to effectively more, let's say, just say more U.S. sanctions, U.S. efforts to to stop them from expanding or, or expanding their reach and growing? And yeah, stuff. I think that uh, there's there's sort of two aspects of this. One is sort of uh, at the at the brute level of just like, hey, they have good cars, but uh, we're going to stop U.S. consumers from buying those cars. And that's not really a technology competition issue. We, we don't have a way of crippling their auto industry, but we have a way of just not allowing them to sell their cars here, right? So that that's uh, one aspect of this. The other aspect is technology bottlenecks. So the U.S. is doing everything it can right now to prevent the Chinese semiconductor companies to getting to the frontier of, uh, you know, five nanometer or, and below uh, chip production, which currently only really TSMC and maybe Samsung can do. Um, and we're doing everything we can. We, we're not allowing ASML, which is a Dutch company, to sell uh, the lithography machines that these uh, Chinese companies want and they're trying to order. Uh, you should look very careful, carefully at the if you're an investor in ASML, you should look, and, and, and other companies like Applied Materials and LAMB Research, companies in the U.S. that are in the semiconductor uh, supply chain, uh, you should look very carefully at their prospects because what's happening is the U.S. is the the nat national security people in the U.S. are putting constraints on those Western companies for what they can sell into China, and they're also trying to pressure the Japanese suppliers like Tokyo Electron and companies like that. Um, what that's doing is creating a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs in China with internal government funding to build their own competitors to all of those companies, Western companies, up and down the semiconductor supply chain. So there's just intense activity right now in China uh, on these things. And, and they've done things like hire, you know, the former head of research uh, or production at TSMC from Taiwan and a hundred of his team and just brought them to China. And in the news, there was just some stuff about uh, SMIC, you know, already being at 14 nanometers and actually starting to sell a seven nanometer process chip. So it's an intense area of competition and the U.S. wants to retard their progress as much as possible. I think it's very hard to do that. I think on a time scale of five to 10 years, I'd be very surprised if China doesn't catch up. Uh, you know, maybe not exactly catch up to the bleeding edge, but cl largely close the gap in semiconductor uh, production. So I, I think all these things are very dynamic. You know, another thing you might say as an investor is like, well, if I can just invest in, you know, well-behaved things I understand uh, in the West, why should I take on this additional geopolitical risk, which is just totally out of the blue and could, you know, I could make perfect calls on which Chinese companies are going to be better than others, but I get screwed by some geopolitical events or something like this. It, it's something that investors should really consider. Great. Well, I think that's probably a good point to, to finish on, even if it's not entirely optimistic. So, uh, Steve, thanks very much for joining me. That was, that was really interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. great. Thank you. You've been listening to Trust Issues by Kepler Trust Intelligence. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Remember to visit our website at trustintelligence.co.uk to keep up with all the latest research on investment trusts.